And welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. This is a rare weekend episode. I could not help myself between these two debuts, one yesterday with Humberto Mejia that I wanted to talk about, and then later today, I'm recording this at 3.45 p.m., so by the time you're listening to this, Daniel Castano may have made his debut already. Maybe you'll squeeze it in right before he makes his debut, or maybe you listen along as the game is being played because you want to switch it up from Todd Hollinsworth. If that's the case too, thank you. But no matter how you're listening, I appreciate you taking the chance to listen because this is fun for me to be able to throw out a little weekend episode. I'll do it from time to time when there's just too much to talk about to wait till Monday, which is exactly what the case is today. You can't expect me to wait till Monday after what Mejia did in just two and a thirds innings. And now we get a chance to see Daniel Castano. So first, let me talk about Mejia's debut because it was short-lived. He only went two and a thirds innings. He did throw a decent amount of pitches because he struck out a lot of batters and he walked a lot of batters. Not a great recipe to go deep in the games, but that was set to be a bullpen game anyways. I talked about Mejia briefly in an added-on little part to the podcast yesterday when I interviewed Tim Healy. I circled back, added a little bit, because right after that interview was when Mejia was announced to be the starting pitcher for yesterday's game. Mejia, as I talked about yesterday, has a big league curveball. I mentioned it before his start. I didn't think it would be that good. I knew it was a big league pitch, but man, did he have that pitch working for him yesterday and his fastball too. His fastball is not going to be one of those wow, blow by you type of fastballs, but it's more than fast enough. 92, 93, maybe can touch a five when he wants to reach back for extra. That's more than enough. And the thing is, he's only thrown 91 professional innings. He's 23 years old. So you look at the age and that might throw you off, but he is a baby in terms of experience. So he could still have a lot more left in that arm and build it back up. Injuries have been an issue for him in the past. So of course, concern number one is to make sure he stays healthy. But number two, maybe he can add another tick on that fastball. But the priority for Humberto Mejia right now has to be adding a third pitch because we saw how good he was with the fastball and the curveball, but he has to be dialed in with both pitches to be able to turn in outings like he did yesterday. In that outing yesterday, just locating the fastball wherever he wanted set up the breaking ball really well, was able to pitch backwards, throwing the curveball earlier in the counts, used the changeup sparingly. And that's the thing with Mejia now is if he faces the Mets or basically any big league team now, you know that they are going to be looking for that breaking ball. And if they're able to sniff out that breaking ball, it's really just a fastball for Mejia that he needs to locate pinpointed because of the fact that he doesn't have that third pitch yet. So not to be the bearer of bad news, I am really intrigued with what we've seen from Mejia, and he has the tools to be a legitimate big league starter, no doubt in my mind. It just is a weird situation now where he's shown he can get out to the big league level. Obviously, we're going to need to see more than two and a third's innings, but overall with Mejia, if we fast forward to next year, I would like to see him get a lot of innings under his belt in the minor leagues again, which seems weird, but it's just the nature of the situation. I would like to see him in double A or triple A and make some starts and out there work on refining a third pitch. But the thing is, 
he is a much higher caliber prospect, I think, than we thought he might be. There was some buzz around him with Marlins fans that love to dive deep into the Marlins system, and with the amount of pitchers that the Fish have right now, it's very understandable that he could be overlooked by most, and even Marlins fans. And the fact that he also has had limited opportunity due to the injuries is a recipe for him being overlooked a little bit. But after looking at what we saw from Mejia yesterday, it's more than fair to slap a 55 grade on that fastball a 60 grade maybe even on that curveball, 55 if we're being tough graders, and a 55 on his command. So if you've got two 55 grade pitches and 55 level command, you are a solid, solid prospect. I'm not going to say top 100 at 23 years old, but he also is unique in the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, has not thrown a lot of innings. So he is younger than his physical age so to speak, in the world of baseball. If he gets that third pitch, all of a sudden, he is a legitimate prospect for the Marlins. And I think that depending on when the reinforcements return at the end of the road trip or whenever that may be, whether the Marlins decide to send Mejia to the bullpen or back down to the taxi squad and then fast forward to next year, what the Marlins will decide to do with him will be interesting. I assume by next year with Sixto Sanchez and Edward Cabrera probably making their way to the major leagues full time, it would be leaving a little void in double A. Mejia still has three options and now we can get a chance to really see what he can do on a full season scale and continuing to build up that arm. But the fact that he could just come up on short notice and pitch like he did in the major leagues makes me excited to see what he can do when he gets a full season in double A and really gets to refine his repertoire. And just to dive back real quick into what makes him good. So what you saw is pretty much what you get on a good day with him right now, which is the very good command of two very solid pitches. And he was able to mix them up well. I think Francisco Francisco Cervelli deserves a lot of credit for what he is doing right now with a bunch of pitchers that he has not really ever gotten a chance to practice with much. And he's calling great games. Cervelli called a great game with Mejia yesterday. And that's worth noting as well because that is a huge challenge. The chemistry between a catcher and a pitcher as you probably know, is vital. And there's some crazy statistics with certain pitchers that really only pitch well with their specific catchers. And can some backup catchers have their careers extended because a team's ace just likes throwing to that guy so much, even though he can't hit the side of the barn at the plate. So I'd really like to just point that out is the fact that Cervelli has been vital, not even considering the fact that he's been an offensive force at the plate right now, and the fact that Jorge Alfaro has been on the COVID IL. Without those two things, he would have been pivotal for Alfaro's development and for these young pitchers development and it's been even more important now that Alfaro's been gone and these young pitchers are coming up and that would have been a lot for Alfaro to handle and to call games with some of these pitchers he's never really interacted with. Cervelli has a lot of experience in probably doing that in the past. Nothing on this scale, but definitely a lot of experience in handling new pitchers, young pitchers, and I'd like to think, I'd almost be positive, even though I haven't really heard anything about it, that Cervelli is playing a big part in the success of these young pitchers or these journeymen that are having a good time so far with the Marlins whether they were struggling before or whether they just haven't had experience at this level yet. So with Mejia, to wrap it up before I get to Castano, 
He looked great. I'm very excited at the fact that I know it's a limited sample size. It was only two and a third innings, but he struck out six. And the fact that he already has two big league offerings is really encouraging to me. And it might only get better for him with the only 91 innings in professional baseball under his belt going into that start. Keep an eye out on Humberto Mejia, and it's just another reminder of how much pitching this Marlins organization has, because Mejia, going into this start, was not ranked on the MLB Pipeline Top 30 Prospects for the Marlins, was ranked 35th on Fangraphs, who usually finds those diamonds in the rough, so to speak, in terms of prospects. They like to be higher on some of the lower guys and lower on some of the higher guys, but that's what makes Fangraphs what it is. And Baseball America, surprisingly, was the most bullish on Mejia, setting him up at 26th on the Marlins' top 30 prospects. And before I get into Daniel Castano, this episode is brought to you by me, because no sponsors on the weekends, this is just baseball talk and just having some fun here. I will try to mix in a few more of these weekend episodes as long as the Marlins give me a reason to as the season endures. So on Daniel Castano now, this is another unique case of an unheralded prospect, so to speak, that has really overperformed. I'd say it's a little bit different than Mejia because Mejia was an international free agent signing, and those guys tend to just have more mystery ceilings, sometimes higher, sometimes lower. You don't know totally what you're getting. With Castano, it was a left-handed pitcher out of college that was a you know teens round pick, and those guys are classic low-ceiling, high-floor pitchers that you just hope can reach their limited ceiling as is. Castano is a perfect example of the type of pitcher that has reached his tempered ceiling, but pushed it all the way to the millimeter, meaning that he has squeezed out every single bit of his potential through what he's able to do. Reminiscent of Nick Knighter in some ways, where, where he's limited physically in terms of being able to throw the ball with consistent velocity and being able to have multiple plus pitches. He doesn't have either of those. While I would say Neidert has a better breaking ball and a little bit more gas on the fastball, the two are similar in the respect that they take advantage of their deception and let that compensate for their lack of velocity, meaning they are funky with their deliveries and it works well for them. They both hide the ball very well. I might do this later because I really want to see it like a side by side of them two. They both hide the ball really well. You don't see it till the last second. It's a downhill plane and it's a good recipe for weak contact. And that's been the name of the game for Daniel Castano. All of his peripherals are really good and really encouraging. I'm not going to sit here and tell you Daniel Castano can be, you know, a top of the rotation type of arm or even a middle of the rotation arm. I don't think he is, but he is a major league pitcher in my opinion. And I'll tell you why throughout his minor league career, even when he wasn't having as much success as he had last year, always was a good ground ball pitcher as a Southpaw and a good ground ball pitcher that can eat innings. That's already something that could be valued at the major league level. The Marlins knew that when he was probably the final piece of that trade with the Cardinals, typically with that last piece of one of the bigger trades that contain multiple prospects. You can go with a lottery ticket or you can go with a higher floor guy that you think can help your bullpen out in the future. Marlins go with the higher floor guy in that case, and it seems like it's paying off so far. We'll see what happens in today's start. 
what looks good for Castano is as the ground ball rate has decreased slightly as it did in double A last year, it's still 5% above average. He had the 49% ground ball rate. Average is about 44% for all levels of baseball. And that ground ball rate dropping would be concerning if the rates anywhere else really rose significantly and they didn't. So that's more of a testament to him getting more fly balls and weak fly balls in the infield. He had a 20% infield fly ball rate, which seems like an obscure stat, but it's actually a really important stat, especially for a pitcher like Castano, who likes to keep hitters off balance. That is the type of thing that he likes to do is get you to roll over or get you out front and pop it up to the infield. A 20% ground ball or infield fly ball rate, excuse me, average is roughly 11%. So 9% above the average in that regard. And then this is the most important stat to me that stood out. And it's the line drive percentage because a big issue for ground ball pitchers in general is the fact that they do get a lot of ground balls, but they also surrender a lot of line drives. And it's common sense tells you line drives are the kiss of death for a pitcher. But what advanced statistics would tell you is that it's even worse than whatever you thought it was. For example, line drives net roughly 1.26 runs per out compared to fly balls, which net 0.13 runs per out and ground balls, which net 0.05 runs per out. So to rehash that, just to go over that again, because it is that significant as you heard it, 1.26 runs per out for line drives. Then it drops all the way to 0.13, which means line drives net about 10 times more runs per out than fly balls and line drives net 25 times more runs than ground balls per out. So on the peripherals, Daniel Castano does a good job in setting himself up for success by using his plus command to compensate for his not so plus stuff. The fastball 88 to 92 topped at four, and he's got a slow curve that he commands well and will throw in any count that can get him ahead to set up that fastball that has some sinking action to it as well. He's a little bit better against lefties, which you'd expect, but the splits are nothing dramatic. He actually gets right-handers out at a pretty good rate because of the fact that he's able to get some sinking action to that fastball tailing away from right-handers and typically gets them to roll over or pop up to the infield. So what can we expect from him today? He does a good job of eating innings, but the problem for him sometimes is that second time around the order, and it makes sense when you consider the fact that he does not have a lot of room for error with his stuff. He can't hide behind velocity on a fastball to get away with missing a spot or hide behind a significant or sharp break on his secondary pitches to really bail him out if he misses a spot with that pitch as well. So for him, he's really got to lock in and hit his spots. And then the other thing with him struggling with the second time around the lineup is that teams start to get a little bit more acclimated to him. In A last year, he was really good the first time through the lineup as long as he got out of first innings, which for whatever reason were tough for him at times when he would have those shaky starts. It seemed to be they either got to him in the first inning or the fifth. So top of the order seems to be more comfortable against him, but especially the second time around when they've already seen him not going 
to get the ball, rather letting the ball come to them, which is what you do with a soft-throwing left-hander. But in the fifth inning in 2019, his ERA, though it isn't a huge sample size, 5.25, he surrendered 15 hits in just 12 innings in the fifth inning. So you'd like to see him be a little bit better there, but you could chalk that up to just a couple bad starts where in the fifth inning he got knocked around once or twice, and that skews the ERA for those entire sample size for that year being that it's only 12 innings. Regardless of the data, the reality is at the major league level, you're not going to get away with mistakes as frequently as you do in the minor leagues. It was encouraging that his numbers didn't really skip a beat in double A and that he did finish very strong last year after hitting a little bit of a lull in the middle of the season, finally finished strong and had a really good August where he went four and one with a 2.75 ERA, 39 innings, he punched out 32. And the one thing I do want to clarify is he's a more complete pitcher than Richard Blyer. And you know I am a fan of Richard Blyer if you listen to this podcast. And not only is he eight years younger than Blyer, he's more complete because while he is that ground ball pitcher and does not quite get as many ground balls as Richard Blyer does, he strikes out more hitters than Blyer does. In the fact that his K percentage is right around average, right around 20 to 22% for the most part, and his walk percentage is elite. He does not walk many batters and does not give up many home runs. And that's the name of the game for Castano. He only gave up four home runs across 90 innings last year, which is elite by any stretch. So we'll see if he can use that to his advantage in a big city field in his debut, even though those walls have been moved in a little bit, and then a big Marlins park if he gets another chance to throw. The fact of the matter is this. The Marlins have a lot of young arms that are worth being excited about. While Daniel Castano might not be the type of prospect you can dream on or get as excited about, Umberto Mejia is a prospect that now has my attention and I'm sure has your attention as well to see how he can develop moving forward because all of a sudden now we know that he has the tools to be a solid major league pitcher and has that projection if he can continue to refine his arsenal and add that third pitch and maybe add a tick to the fastball included with added durability. But now he is another pitcher that could rapidly ascend in this system and be another one of those diamonds in the rough for the fish that had been forgotten about because of some injuries early in his career. And now, even with Mejia, if he's able to turn into just a decent piece as a prospect, you know, get into the 20s as a top prospect, the Marlins are just completely and utterly loaded when it comes to pitching in this system. And the Marlins will be able to use some of that pitching down the line. And I don't like to trade guys away already, but the number of arms that the Marlins have that you could potentially dream on is just ridiculous. And they'll be able to trade from a surplus of those guys that maybe you can't dream on as much. For example, I think Mejia is a very different type of prospect than Robert Duggar because Robert Duggar, you know what you're getting at this point. I don't know if there's much more for Robert Duggar to refine in his stuff. He kind of just is what he is. But when you look at Mejia, he has some tools that Duggar doesn't have and a lot more room for improvement. Those are the types of players you like to have in your 20s in the prospect rankings that can make a Pablo Lopez type of ascension. But let's just fly through it real quick before I wrap up 
with how ridiculous the pitching depth is in this system. You start with Sixto Sanchez, who you can dream on, Max Meyer, of course, Edward Cabrera, Braxton Garrett, Trevor Rogers, Nick Neidert, Dax Fulton, and I'm only listing the guys that are legitimate potential rotation pieces. Kyle Nicholas has the ceiling of a rotation piece. Zach McCambly as well. Eater, a lot more bullpen risk. But again, these are pieces that are legitimate, valuable pieces, especially if they have a good season next year. All of a sudden, you could put together a really nice trade package out of some of these guys. I'm really disappointed with what we saw from Jorge Guzman. I think that most Marlins fans and prospect analysts alike have been fading Guzman a little bit as he's just not really shown that development that you'd hope to complement the fastball, and it showed in his debut the other day. But how about like Brady Encarnacion? Brady Encarnacion is another player like Luis Palacios that all of a sudden could turn into a legitimate piece too. So if you have all of those guys even at the lower levels, maybe you're okay with trading Braxton Garrett or Trevor Rogers. Well, even though you would not like to get rid of the Southpaws because the Marlins, though they did draft Dax Fulton, don't have as many Southpaws with Jake Eater, Dax Fulton, and then just the other two lefties that have been fixtures in the Marlins system for a while now. You could trade maybe one of those Southpaws and one of the Marlins litany of outfielders to have a nice trade package for a legitimate controllable piece when the Marlins are closer to contending and then have a player like Robert Duggar or one of those tweeners as a throw-in in in the deal as well. All of a sudden, the Marlins have a decent package and maybe can get a decent prospect, especially as the Marlins prospects continue to ascend. Really interesting to see what the moves can be moving forward. I don't know what the Marlins are going to do moving forward because we don't know how competitive they can continue to be, though I'm enjoying this ride. It'll be interesting to see how the deadline goes. I'll have an episode on that in the future. Actually, this coming week, I'll probably discuss it as we get a better idea of how long the Marlins can ride this streak out. I don't think the Marlins will be buyers by any stretch. I don't think they'll be sellers either, unless they're specific kind of deals. I would love to see a Sergio Romo type of trade. Of course, you can't always count on bringing in a prospect like Lewin Diaz, but I do like what the Marlins did there with the fact that they traded a veteran that they knew they weren't going to have in the future, right? He's not part of the long-term plans, and they didn't want to get a limited return, so they threw in a pitching prospect that was in the 20s range in terms of quality in the top 30 ranking in Chris Valamont, but an underrated pitching prospect, though the Marlins have so much pitching depth, they were able to let him go. They needed a first baseman prospect and it was perfect. And that was the right deal for the Marlins, right? Adding a decent prospect to a veteran to get an even better prospect in return. I loved that deal. That would be the kind of deal I'd like to see the Marlins do. And I'll get into that in the next episode as to who the Marlins could end up trading, what the Marlins could end up doing. And I'll have a better pulse on that as the next three to four games are played. Looking forward to bringing you an episode on Monday. If you're listening to this before the game, let's hope the Marlins can keep it rolling. If you're listening to this after, hopefully my analysis on Castano ages well, and you can listen to that to supplement it. I think whether he has a good outing or not, you can get the gist of why he either had a good outing or why he didn't from this podcast due to the fact that I gave you the reasons why he could struggle, the reasons why I think he can eat some innings and turn in some quality spot starts here and there. 
and we'll see what it is with his debut here against the Mets. Marlins have won six in a row. Let's see if they can make it seven and keep the ball rolling and take another series in New York now with the game this evening. Hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. I'm glad I could bring it to you. Please, if you have a second, I'd really appreciate if you left a review, gave the podcast a rating, let me know how I'm doing. As always, I appreciate the feedback. And if you could interact with me on Twitter, I'm always happy to answer questions. Maybe I'll answer them in the next podcast. Maybe I'll answer them during the games. Or if you just want to chat Marlins during the game and shoot the shit, I'm your guy. So reach out at RMLayton8 or at LockedOnMarlins, and I will always be interacting with you during the game. Always available to talk some baseball. DMs are open as well. Be well, be kind, and welcome people to the Marlins bandwagon. Let's watch this miracle Marlins run continue to roll.